Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. Like most all of Paul's letters, Ephesians is divided into two parts, roughly. The first half tells us what God has done for us so amazingly in his gift of Christ. The second half of the letter tells us how we ought to behave ourselves as a result of that. This scripture comes from the second half of this book, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Good morning. We are delighted to be here. Today is a day that um, has a special sentiment and nostalgia for me. I have never told before this morning the story of how my so-called seminar team through the years uh, got its beginning, but since Bev and I are in the process of stepping back from full-time ministry in these weeks, and today is my very last day uh, bringing young people to churches. I've counted, I've not kept an accurate count, but I'm sure that the number uh, with today is something like 350 times in various schools and various states that it's been my privilege to put teenagers in front of adult church services to talk about God. And I'll tell you, you know, as an adult, you can stand in front of an audience and you make an error, everyone notices and frowns. You put a teenager up here and they make a mistake, everybody smiles. It is so cool. A few decades ago, my family had just arrived on the campus of Garden State Academy. And the conference president, who was a gentleman that a lot of you know, named Don Schneider, president of the New Jersey Conference, had invited me to come over to the cafeteria to meet all the ministers who were busily engaged with Camp Pitch. On my way there, I was met by a young lady who identified herself as Marty Schneider, Don's wife, and she looked unusually anxious. And she said to me, are you Duane Boyer, our new Bible teacher? I said, yes, I am. And she was obviously very, very distressed about something. And she said, have you met my husband yet? I said, no. And she said, this just relief just washed over her. And she said, good. 
I wanted you to meet someone normal in my family first. And so I went on into the cafeteria. Garden State Academy had been a dude ranch. And the cafeteria was actually the ballroom with the crystal chandeliers of movie stars, TV personalities from back in mainly the 50s. The boys' dorm was the horse stables. It was quite an impressive place, beautiful lakes on the campus. Bob Hope had personally planted the maple trees on the way in the lane back to the school. It was a rather amazingly beautiful place. And I went into the cafeteria, the ballroom, and there was Don Schneider. And he immediately stopped all the eating, and I learned, I would learn later on that Don Schneider only had two words in his, his vocabulary. And those words were evangelism and education. If you were into one of those two things, he liked you. And if you weren't, he would try to figure out a way to get you involved in either evangelism or education. And uh, so he introduced me to all the pastors, and, and the first thing he said was to the pastors, he said, you all have booked Dwayne Boyer to speak in your church this school year, haven't you? Which was the most ridiculous thing to say because we had only arrived on campus the day before. I didn't know a single person there. But he shamed them to the point that immediately they were pulling out their little pocket calendars, and with, by 10 minutes I had a complete... A listing of dates to speak in New Jersey conference churches that whole next school year. And as I walked back to my house, I thought, wow, this is interesting. Why should I do this myself? Wouldn't this be a fantastic opportunity for me to bring one student who plays piano and another student who maybe could put together a little sermon and with a little coaching and that began on that day my idea to do what you're going to see for the last time in my life today. And that's why for me, not for them, but for me, today holds so much nostalgia. And um, my wife was sitting here in first service and you know, she was sitting there with the tears. And so anyway, she's, I don't know if she's here today for second service, but she's probably hiding if she is. Anyway, we are delighted to be here. Hey, listen. <clears throat> I love so many aspects of Scripture. One in particular is Scriptures which connect the vertical and the horizontal. The divine initiative, theologians like to say, and the human response. Verses like 1 John 4, 19, which says, We love God, each other, because... He first loved us. Or Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. The horizontal. Just as Christ loved the church. And then he explains exactly what he means by how Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. Or like the scripture that we just read. The last part of it. When our kids were little... Care Bears were popular, and I don't remember which one. Aaron, I think, had a little Care Bear named Tenderheart. And I always wondered if the person who invented Care Bears, I'd never found out they were Christians or if they got them from this verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Our subject today 
is sanctification. Living life for Christ. It's kind of a wide open smorgasbord sort of a topic. There must be a thousand things that we could talk about. If justification is like finding a thousand ways to say one thing, sanctification would be like figuring out one magical formula to say a thousand different ways. I have always appreciated in my life trying to understand, partly by my own experience, how God uses trials and disappointments in life. Um, it has been my observation. I'll be interested someday to find out if God says, yeah, you were right about this or not. But it's been my tentative conclusion that one of the rules, so to speak, that God follows in how we face trials and disappointments in life is that God never uses a bad circumstance to teach us something that we could learn through a good circumstance. I don't know how many of you would agree with that. My second tentative conclusion is that God carefully meters, he governs the extent to which he allows us to suffer. You know that verse in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says there's no temptation that's come upon you but that's common to man and God is faithful and he will find a way of escape uh, that you may be able to bear up under it. Well the Greek word there can also be translated trial. There is no trial that has ever come to you but you're not going through it alone. Other people have been there before. And God is faithful. He will give you the means by which to bear up under it. In Gary Richmond's book called A View from the Zoo, he describes watching, being invited to watch the birth of a giraffe. And as he's sitting there with the veterinarian, um, he's wondering, as the mother giraffe is getting ready to deliver, she's standing up. And he said, when's she going to lie down? Well, she won't. Yeah, but the baby's going to fall from eight feet. Is a fireman's net going to be secured to procure some safety for the baby? And the zookeeper said, um, Gary, you're welcome to go try to catch the baby if you want. But giraffes have kicked lions' heads off getting too close to their babies being born. She has enough strength to do that. Well, finally the moment came and the baby giraffe was born and dropped right to the floor. The mother swung her huge head around and looked at the baby for a moment. And then about a minute later did the most sur surprising thing. She took her long leg and kicked the baby so that it went sprawling head over heels or maybe head over hooves across the floor. And after a moment, she kicked the baby again. And the violent process kept continuing. And finally, to the cheers of everybody looking on, the little giraffe finally struggled to its wobbly feet, stood up. And then, the mother did the most striking thing. She kicked the baby off its feet and sent it sprawling again. Why'd she do that? She wants it to remember how it got up. 
Because in the wild, the baby would have to very quickly follow the herd wherever they were going away from harm's way. And when I read that story, I thought of, I think, my Lord, is something like that mother giraffe. Always, whenever I go through a tough time, he always has my best interests at heart. He always cares. He knows how much I can bear. He always knows what is best for me. The Apostle Paul, I, sus I suspect, uses the word sanctification, certainly in the New Testament, more than anyone else. And it has a lot of nuances, the word. The first meaning of it, when I got acquainted with how he uses this term, surprised me and delighted me at the same time. The first foremost meaning for the Apostle Paul of the word sanctification is the idea of belonging. You belong to God. For the Apostle Paul, what does it mean to be a saint? That's the same word, by the way. It means that you belong to God. You are his. Haley Butler is a senior at our school, and she is going to share some thoughts about this idea of belonging to him. Okay, um, good morning and happy Sabbath. So um, at the beginning of the school year, um, my class had a fireside at Mrs. Landing's house, and one of our um, math teachers, Miss Hunt, she spoke. And um, before she got into her main um, message, we played a game. She would give us a statement, and we would have to decide if we agreed or disagreed with it. And we had to 100% agree or 100% disagree. And then based on that, we'd move to one side of the field or the other. So one of the questions maybe might have been, chocolate cake is the best dessert in the world. And if you thought so, you would move to one side, and if you disagreed, you'd move to the other. And so it went on like this for a few questions, and then finally she got into some of the more, um, some, into some of the deeper questions. One of them that she asked was, do you agree or disagree with this statement? God is chasing after you. And we're all a little bit surprised, and we looked around to see what um, others would do. We began to choose sides, and all but one or two um, were on one side, and everyone else was on the other. Can you guess what side we mainly chose? We all decided that we did not think that God was chasing after us. When our teacher asked us why, we said something along the lines of, God is the king of the universe. He created the world. He shouldn't have to chase after us. Shouldn't we be the ones to chase after him? But then she just smiled, and we moved on with the game. Later, um, um, in the middle of her message, she talked about how God really is chasing after us. Um, we were all quite surprised, to say the least. In Psalm 23:6, in the New Living Translation, it talks about God pursuing us. It says, Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. This verse is literally saying that God's goodness and love, but not just any love, his unfailing love, um, is constantly chasing after us because he loves us and he wants us to be saved. And then in, verse, uh, in Psalm 139, 17 and 18, it goes on to say how God is constantly thinking about us. Verse 17 reads, 
How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Honestly, how amazing is that? God, the creator of the universe, is constantly thinking about us and will never stop thinking about us. But then the next question is, how does he catch us? And the answer is simple. We just have to let him. Once we embrace him and finally stop running, we can now belong to him. And belonging to Christ is something that I personally find truly incredible. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about how we were bought with a price. And in fact, this is the biggest and greatest price that anyone has ever had to pay. There is this story about a little boy who received a gift for his birthday. His father got him a kit where he could build his own boats. And he was so excited about it, he took the time and he carefully crafted it, and he worked really hard all day, and he finally built this boat. So he went to the nearby river and he started to sail it. And he did this every day after school. He was so excited about it. But then one day, a wind came and carried it really far down the bank. And, and he chased along the side of the river and tried to catch it, but he couldn't do it, and it was gone. Later down the, the stream, a man found the boat and said, wow, this is an amazing boat. So he went and he sold it to a shopkeeper. And so then later, the little boy who was so sad was walking through the town, and he stopped at the store and he said, wow, that, that looks like my boat. And he went inside and he asked the shopkeeper, that's my boat, can I have it back? I built it, I built it. And the shopkeeper said, no, it's my boat now. If you want it, you have to buy it. So the little boy went and he gathered all the money he could find and he went, came back and he bought the boat. And um, so then he finally did it and he, and he said to the boat, little boat, you are twice mine. Once I made you and now I bought you. In the same way, we're like this little boat, and God created us. He fearfully and wonderfully made us, and then, and then he bought us with his son Jesus. So we're twice his. And in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And this verse always makes me smile. Just think about how amazing and awesome God is. But for someone who is as great as he is to say all of this about us, the imperfect sinners that we are, it's just amazing. It's completely clear that God already chose us. Um, and then the second that we accept him, we become his chosen people and his special possession, and we belong to him. According to Paul, belonging to Christ is the same thing as sanctification as Mr. Boyer was singing. Uh, and sanctification is being perfect and holy to Christ. The moment you come to Jesus, God sees you as a saint. However, way before all of this, Christ died for our sins and already made us perfect forever by his eternal sacrifice. Hebrews 10:14 sums it up like this. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This verse means that we already have a perfect status with God. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. However, it also says that we are being made holy. God's work in us is incomplete and imperfect because we are imperfect. God starts to work in us after we've accepted him and he helps us grow in him and understand him better. Then based on our understanding of him, we can go and live the Christian life and love others. And also turning back to 1 Peter 2.9, the second half says that 
we belong to him so that we can declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. These verses are all saying that because we choose God and claim him as our savior, we can then go and live for him. Belonging to God comes first. So um, we all have belongings that we think are important to us. I'm sure all of um, my friends and students here think our cell phones are pretty important to us. And I'm sure that lots of you have very special belongings that you care about. Mr. Boyer, while we were working on this talk, shared with me that his grandfather gave him a pocket watch before he died. It's solid gold, and I actually have it with me. He let me borrow it. It's solid gold, and it's really, really important to him. But that's not the reason why he thinks it's so important, because it's solid gold. He thinks it's important because his grandfather gave it to him. Before that, his grandfather's grandfather gave it to him, to his grandfather, and then his grandfather gave it to Mr. Boyer, and so on and so on. And so that's really, really important to Mr. Boyer, as he shared with me. And then on a far more infinite level, the Bible says that because of what God did for us in Christ, we belong to him, and we are so much more important to God than this watch is to Mr. Boyer. Um, and when, when we threw away God's love, he still chased after us and redeemed us so that we could be his special belongings. So in summary of this whole master plan, Jesus already paid the price. He bought us with his blood on the cross, and all we have to do is accept the gift. But if we are a little stubborn like we tend to be, God will pursue us with his unfailing love, uh, and the second that we accept his gift, we are in a perfect status with God. And then through his never finished work in us, we can then project his love to those around us and live the Christian life and, and just live for Christ. And though this life may have its ups and downs, we have to remember that we will always be God's most important belongings and that's all that really matters. In our marriage and family class unit with seniors, um, in recent years, I've showed them the movie Fireproof. And we stop and talk about key issues in the movie, much to my delight and their consternation. Mr. Boyer, don't hit the stop button now, not now! We gotta talk, we gotta talk. And at the end of you know, with the outtakes, they have this fireproof in 60 seconds where the whole movie is condensed into 60 seconds, which is, you know, quite comical. And I just, and it made me think, if you were going to reduce the plan of salvation to 60 seconds, how would you say it? If that were your assignment tonight, to say the plan of salvation in 60 seconds. Let me, uh, I tried it in 20 seconds. Are you ready? This world belonged to God. It sold out to Satan. Christ came. The war was on. God wins. All creation sings his praise.
working to have our, cord, our cordless mics on up here. They all set? Okay, they're, they are on. Sometimes you get the, hi, hello, how are you? How's it going when you meet somebody? But sometimes you get the, how are you feeling? What if the answer that you gave did not matter? What if how you feel is not really a part of the equation? Hey, Ryan. Hey, what's going on, Jeff? Dude, look at this new green shirt I got. Ah, uh, that shirt is definitely red. What? So... No, I just went to the store and got it. It said, brand new green shirt, only $29.99. Oh, uh, that's, uh, first, that's very pricey for a t-shirt, and also this is red. It's a, no, it's a nice it's red t-shirt, but it's still red. It's not green at all. Well, I feel like it's green, though. This shirt is, this shirt is more red than your face when you get embarrassed. This is red. Like, uh, it doesn't matter what you feel because the shirt's red, so just letting you know. Huh. I really felt like it was green. It's red. Ah, ankle. Ah. Evelyn, what's wrong? Why are you limping? Oh, oh, well, <laughs> well you see, <laughs> it's just that the other day I was doing, um, Sorry, let me say it. It's yeah, just, you uh, should. I, I was doing a, a quadruple backflip. What? Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I, I feel Can like I, I, I injured it. Like everyone's telling me, they're like, Evelyn, I feel like you're injured, so th they I, must be right. Yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. I mean, um, I don't think it's broken. I mean, <laughs> what would you know? <laughs> Actually, I'm a third level PhD chiropractician. Oh. Yeah, well, so I would. Well, aren't you fancy? Yeah. All right, well, why don't you stand up and uh, but we'll it feels, see if you feel it, better. I'm telling you. Really? Oh. Whoa, whoa. Whoa there, I mean, chiropractician. You look fine. You're should walking should get a degree perfectly. in pushing people. Not you look nice. fine. So like I was saying, I'm so upset that you couldn't make it to my soccer game yesterday because like I scored the winning goal in the last 10 seconds and it was this super cool header. I dove for the ball. The Caps won last night, everyone. 4-3. Wow, I'm sorry for if, if I spoiled that or something. And like, um, you know, your best friend brought me flowers after the game. It was That's sweet. wonderful. I'm also, you know, thinking about shaving my head. Oh, that's great. Dropping Jordan out of school. Joining a rock band. Green jacket. Oh, oh man. Hey, hey, you know uh, what? You know what? I think we need to break up. What? Wait, 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 wait. Why, why, why? Oh, did you listen to that? I always listen. No uh, yeah, you know you don't. No, I feel like I do, though. You, you, just, have to, you just have to hear me. When okay, I what, what did I just tell you about? That thing, you know, it, 
the thing, the thing the that thing I did with the, the, with people? the people. The people. Yes, the people. No. And no, not only do you not listen to me, you are never there for me. I feel like I am, though. You just, you just have to just feel it. Just, you just, just have feel to feel it. When I am there, just amplify it. Just, just, I'm there. I'm always there. Just, I'm See, there. The, this relationship, there are too many problems. I can't do this anymore. No. Our relationship is full of problems. I, yeah. It's not all about what you feel is there. If there are problems in a relationship, it doesn't matter if you feel like they're not, they're there. But, but I feel like we're okay. I feel... You know what? Why don't you come talk to me when you get out of your feelings? Because I'm done. Hey everyone, welcome to Bible class. I'm glad you guys are all here. How was your week? Um, okay, okay, okay. Uh, sounds like you all have had some very interesting weeks. Um, so today our Bible lesson is entitled, uh, Don't Trust Your Feelings. So how many of you have ever felt like your relationship with God is one way, when in fact it's another? So how many of you have ever had problems with your, or think you have problems in your relationship with God or that it's broken or something, but in actuality, it's not that bad? So how many of you have ever walked around thinking you were just fine, your relationship was perfect, and then something or someone comes along to remind you it's not? <laughs> well, First John 5 says this. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is, a, is in his Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So often, when you have a good relationship with God, the devil is constantly telling you that, you're not good enough, that it's not a good relationship, and reminding you of your shortcomings. Well, on the flip side, when you aren't right with God, he's constantly telling you, you're fine, nothing's wrong, and, and your relationship is just okay, and so you ignore the problems. So what I want you guys to remember is that no matter how you feel, the fact is that God died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross for you, and he loves you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us to remember the gift that you gave us on the cross. Help us to remember how much you love us and return that love to you. Amen. I, um took a few years out of working in academy, I used to be a pastor. And I learned very quickly that adult Adventists ask good questions. And teenage Adventists ask good questions. But there is nothing in common in those two sets of questions. Adult Adventists want to know about Sabbath issues at work and similar such things. But I've discovered in my years with teenagers that this issue that we just depicted and Brianna so well talked about 
is a huge issue, at least among teenagers. I don't know how much it is among adults. If you have a real relationship with Christ, if it's genuine, if heaven, if you died tonight, heaven would be yours. The devil plays his role of Satan, Satan. It's a word in Hebrew that simply means accuser, accuser. If you have a real relationship with Christ, the devil turns into Satan, reminding you weaknesses, your sins, your frailties, your shortcomings. You know, why even call yourself a Christian? Why even claim to belong to him? Look at what you just did an hour ago. And on the other hand, if you're just playing church, if you don't have a real relationship with God, the devil would like to do everything possible to make you feel that everything is just fine so that you won't ever feel your need, your heart's deepest need of him. The devil would love you to feel the opposite of whatever the truth is with you and God. Think of an old-fashioned train with a steam engine and coal car and the cars and the caboose. Think of the locomotive as the fact of what God has accomplished for you in Christ. Think of the coal car that's necessary as coal is being shoveled into the engine, uh, to, into the furnace to fire the steam, to create the steam, as faith, our connection with the fact of what God has done. The caboose down on the end, that shiny, red, beautiful caboose, think of that as feelings. Fact, faith, feelings. That train is going to run just as fine without a caboose as with. In fact, the caboose could get in the way of the train's travel. Because if the, if the caboose gets derailed, the car in front of it could easily derail, and the car in front of that, and the, car, and pretty, and the whole train could come off the tracks. Someone dear to us one time said, feelings are the devil's playground. Beware of feelings in the Christian life. When our daughter Erin passed away, I was reading her spiritual diary, and she wrote in there something that just broke my heart. I had no idea. I feel like a bad dad that I didn't know. She talked about how she didn't have the same feelings for God that her dad and her sister seemed to have. And she thought because of it, there was something wrong with her relationship with God. My heart just broke. I never had the privilege of teaching her in my Bible class of talking about this issue of feelings. But she just was beaten down by Satan's constant charges. Well, because you don't, have, you don't feel good about Jesus, you must not have him. That is not true. That is not true. Feelings are optional in the Christian life. And when they are there, they are never trustworthy. Don't trust feelings. Trust the fact of what God has accomplished for you.
Place your confidence in him, not in emotions. Never. God has made an evaluation of you. He has said and declared a thousand ways that he loves you and that he likes you. Satan has an evaluation of you too. The question you have to answer is, very simply, which evaluation of you will you accept? Which one? Living life with Jesus will inevitably produce a person who loves, who loves God on his terms and who loves people the way God ordains. Sadly for some, they so twist the meaning of love that it morphs into a sort of anti-love. Listen to Chelsea's thoughts and you'll see what I mean. Um, last Thanksgiving, I went to Chicago um, to stay with some friends, and we decided for Thanksgiving to um, give food and stuff to the homeless people with her church. And it was kind of nerve-wracking because you had to walk up to people that you didn't know and um, give them food, and you know, there's always that thought, like, what if they don't want it? Um, so I just decided to rip off the Band-Aid, and I went to the first person I saw, which was a woman sitting on the curb. And I said, would you like a sandwich? And she looked at me, and she looked at the sandwich, and then she looked at me, and she said, I'm not homeless. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. So I kind of stood there for a second, and then she started yelling. So I did the mature thing, and I ran away. <laughs> the problem with that situation was that I judged that woman. Um, even though I had the best intentions, I was trying to help, I was trying to do something nice, I ended up judging her. As Christians, we're called to follow God's commandments, but when the people around us aren't, it's difficult sometimes to not seem holier than thou. There's a song out now called Take Me to Church, and there's a line in it that says, I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. In some circles, this is what people actually think about Christians. They don't think of the beautiful gift that Christ gave us. They don't think of God's love. They don't think of the things we do to help people. They don't see Jesus. They just see judgment, which isn't even supposed to be there. In today's day and age of postmodernism, where everyone is right in what they believe, the word judgmental gets thrown around a lot, so I'm going to define it for today's purposes. Judging is placing judgment on another human being and essentially taking God's place in a way that is detrimental to the person being judged. Um, there are three main problems with judging. The first one is forgetting to love. Mr. Boyer has a great rule that I admire a lot. He says, you shouldn't criticize someone unless you're willing to die for them. Christ says in the Bible the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God and number two, love your neighbor. He says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This shows that love is pretty important. In John 8, a woman is caught in adultery. Something to remember here is that she committed the sin that brought her here. Sometimes we depict her as a victim. And though there may have been some tricking there and stuff, she did commit the sin. But the interesting part is that the only person there who was qualified to condemn her was the only one who wasn't doing so. 
Jesus shows her love. He tells her, your sins are forgiven. Now go. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I do not love, I am nothing. If we do everything we are supposed to do in our Christian walk except for love, we will be like those who are condemning this woman to death and not doing what Christ did, but rather being judgmental. So the first problem is forgetting to love. The second problem is taking God's place. This is an issue because when we judge, what we do is we push God off of the throne and we say, I know more than you, God. You shouldn't be on the throne, and we take his place. My sophomore year, I started doing soccer, and it turned out to be a lot of fun. But something that was um, unexcited, unexpectedly fun were the soccer moms. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware that a mom will do anything for their child. And this is not outside of the confines of soccer. So on occasion, a ref will make a bad call, and the moms are very verbal about it. They'll say what they think to the ref. And even though they're showing love, they're looking after their child, what they're, they're doing is they're pushing the ref out of his position and saying, I know more than you, ref. We're doing the same thing when we judge other people. We're saying, I know more than you, God. In Matthew 7, 3, it says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus is making a humorous statement here. A similar idea could be someone who has an F trying to help someone with a 99%. It's preposterous. But still, um, so the Bible says, instead of trying to take the speck from our friend's eye, we should first get our plank removed from our Heavenly Father. And before we try to help our friend with the 99%, we should first go to our Heavenly Teacher to help us with our F. Um, so the first problem is forgetting to love. The second problem is taking God's place. The third problem is an, putting an emphasis on works instead of faith. When we judge, we're not centered on Christ and all of the wonderful things he has done for us. Rather, we're centered on works. We put an emphasis on what we should be doing, not what Christ has already done. The Church of Laodicea struggled with apathy, not judgmentalism, but it had the same core issue. It was based on works and not on Jesus. God had a promise to the Laodiceans that holds true to us true. Too. In Revelation 3.20, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. When we judge, we forget to love. We kick God off of his throne, and we emphasize works rather than Christ. But God still has a promise for us. He invites us to eat with him so that we can learn to love from the one who created it. He lets us sit with him on his throne, even though we've just kicked him off of it. And he knocks on the door of our hearts so that rather than a work-centered life, we may have a Christ-centered one. Sometimes living for Christ isn't simply doing right, it's thinking right. Generally, what we do is a function of what we think and not the other way around. A key to quality Christian living is knowing where we're going. Our destiny determines our duty. If you were into righteousness by works, you'd say it the other way around. You'd say, my duty determines my destiny. But I'd like to suggest to you that it's quite the opposite of that. Indeed, if you're if you're headed to church, you dress a certain way. 
you don't dress that way and then decide, okay, what is this good for? If you're going on a hike, you dress for the hike. The hike determines the way you dress. In a similar way, the ultimate destiny of the Christian, heaven, determines the way we live today. Our mindset is different because our real home is not the one that's here. Our real home is the one with Christ and God in heaven that he has given for us. Jesus' death has secured for us a new perfect standing with God and his resurrection has won for us victory over the ultimate enemy of death and it determines the way we live. I'm not personally into Southern gospel music, but I heard a song one time of that genre. The words caught me that said, if, if, you're, not, if you're not going where I'm going, then you'll be, if you're not, wait a minute. How's that go? If you're not, I didn't write it down. I should have written it down. <laughs> if you're not headed where I'm headed, then you'll, if you're not going where, if you're not headed where I'm, if you're not headed where I'm, you're headed, then you'll be here. I know what it is. It goes like this. If you're, see, you know I have to retire. If you're not here what I'm here after, then you'll be here after I'm gone. There you go. All right, let me say it one more time to get it right. If you're not here what I'm here after, then you'll be here after I'm gone. Okay. That's, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Larry King, the Jew, Larry King. I heard him say one time, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, it would change everything I believe about everything. Yaroslav Pelikan, a theologian that many Adventists have some regard for, out of Yale some years ago, one time said, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then nothing else matters. My friends, the empty tomb guarantees life at the end, life.
the mountains of Virginia many years ago, there was a tough country school, a bunch of boys that no teacher could handle. Teacher after teacher resigned. One year, a thin, rather unathletic-looking young man applied for the job and insisted he was up for the challenge. On his first day, the boys sized him up, and within a minute, the biggest, meanest kid, Tom, whispered out loud, I won't need any help. I can lick him myself. But this teacher had a style that intrigued the students. The teacher said, well, we're here to have school, and I want to have a good school. And I admit, I don't think I could do it without your help. So I reckon we ought to have a few rules. But our rules ought to make sense to you. So you tell me what rules you'd like to have, and I'll write them down on the board. One fellow yelled out, no stealing. All readily agreed. Another one said, got to be on time. The class agreed. No cheating. Okay. No lying. All right, that sounds good. Got to be honest. Well, the teacher said, I suppose the rule book doesn't have any teeth unless there are consequences. What shall we do with one who breaks them? Whip him across the back ten times without his coat on, someone shouted. Yeah, 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 that's right. And they all agreed. All went well until a few days later, Big Tom came in from recess and discovered his lunch was gone. Teacher, my dinner's gone. Somebody stole my lunch. Big Tom was not happy. Teacher had everyone stand up and told them they'd stay standing up until the thief confessed. They all stood in silence for a long time. And then from the back, all could hear a whimper. And they turned around to see little Jimmy about 10 years old, his face quivering, his eyes welling up with tears, and then he just started to sob uncontrollably. The class gasped. They couldn't believe little Jimmy would do this. All right, teacher said. We all agreed on the rule and the penalty. Jimmy, come up here and take off your coat. Jimmy, why? Why did you do this? I'm so sorry. I, my dad died and we haven't had any food for three days and I was just so hungry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Little Jimmy removed his coat and his classmates all exclaimed together, oh, because not only was he not wearing a shirt, but he was nothing but skin and bone. And they knew he could never take 10 lashes. The teacher couldn't believe it either. But well, he knew that if the rule wasn't enforced, the entire fabric of that old discipline system would be destroyed. The class sat in a state of horrified shock as Jimmy bent over a desk. But as the teacher brought the whip back, 
Big Tom spoke up. Wait, teacher, wait. Big Tom strode to the front of the room. He too was crying. He said, teacher, is there a rule that says someone can't take the penalty for someone else? No, we didn't make any rule like that. Well then, if it would be okay with a class, I'd like to take his punishment for him. And with that, Big Tom took off his coat and laid his huge frame over little Jimmy and took the whip. The class couldn't watch, but just sat with heads bowed in amazement. And when the swats were done, they heard more sobs, and they all looked up at once to see little Jimmy's arms wrapped around Tom's neck, and he said, Tom, I'm awful sorry, Tom. I was so hungry. I'll love you until the day I die for taking my licking for me. I'll love you forever. That, my friend, is the essential basis of sanctification. There was one who took our place, paid the penalty of our breaking God's law, and now invites us to live, to really live for him forever. Oh God, may we always live for the one who has lived and died for us.